coming up in my culture story. What is going on? In WA, we still have no heritage protection laws. The country's in a meltdown with racism surfacing everywhere on The Voice. Seems like we're in a time warp. I don't know. I'll share some reflections. Oi, 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 oi. Nana, Peter, call it a podcast. Go. Good day and welcome back to my culture story. So, we're nearing the end of September. I have voted. In the referendum, the polling booths are open in remote places like Leonora. So I've had my say. I won't share what I, how I voted, just as a matter of decorum. Although, as this episode proceeds, you will probably conclude uh, how I voted. So yes, go out there, exercise your democratic and civil right, and vote. This is the most powerful and fundamental tool of being a citizen of the nation. A democratic nation is the ability to vote. But on to other things. So there's four things I'll share with you on this episode. It's been a while between drinks and uh, I have been consumed by the events of life, the universe and everything. Uh, But I've been inspired by having taken a small group of underground miners out onto country. Not all of them were underground miners, but uh, they all worked for an underground mining company. A special shout out to the folks at Bar Minko, who in some way have inspired me to come back and update my podcast, because there's quite a few, there's a spike in listeners uh, coming out, especially after MJ produced and put out the video of the special cultural immersion trip that uh, my brother Talbot and I took uh, Barminko staff out on country, on Jewel country. And it's so cool, it's the simple things. Simple things of life. And... When you go to do a course like that, a cultural awareness course or something like that, professional development, I as a presenter or a facilitator, and I'm assuming the person within the organisation who's coordinated and brought me in and all the participants, we're always on edge. We're... um, struggling and trying to manage expectations, delivery, all those sort of things. 
what I found on this trip, yes, I started off in that way, but as we all got together at Leinster and uh, started to join and travel, and some people were joining later and others were still travelling and others went past and uh, got lost, lucky they were not lost, but missed the turn-off because they were so engrossed in talking. As we go through all of that, it's always this sense of connecting and setting back into the rhythm of the land. Follow the time of the land. Just let go. And from that point, everything everything comes together. Because that's part of the whole experience of a cultural immersion trip on country. Someone like myself, we're hosting you. We're hosting you on on this backdrop, this stage, this special place that is country, that has the hearts and souls of thousands of generations of Aboriginal people, of an ancient landscape, all coming together to that point in time that we experienced that event. So if you want to see a short skit of that trip I did with the Barminko crew, check out my posts on LinkedIn, uh, Kate Amure on LinkedIn, and you'll see how even a plastic drum can't get away from the spear throw. And so going on from that, I come off that, I go down into the city and there's some massive meetings uh, working on the dual nation and their relationship with the state government, the implementation, uh, board meetings. So it's always a massive juxtaposition between culture, country, contentment to city, lights, excitement, agitation, stress, which you can manage. <clears throat> and today I'm travelling to go down to Perth again for another meeting and leaving another crew I have out in the bush. And this time it's the crew with Reclaim the Void, our project of making rugs on country. This is the second camp. We had the other camp, which also doubles as a Sufi uh, retreat. And on this camp, we have some young Aboriginal people out on the trip with us. And again... Connecting, sharing, and just being. Your mere physical presence on country is in itself a spiritual experience. And that connecting then as a community.
So I'm really, really happy to have and lucky to be hosting these people, sharing the experiences <coughs> and welcoming, welcoming them to country. And then you go back and look at the stark juxtaposition with politics. One of the big projects that uh, we as the National Native Title Council, as traditional owners of Western Australia, were completely dumbfounded and shocked by the somersaulting, backflipping Premier of WA, who took away the Cultural Heritage Act that they stomped all over and jackbooted us into um, introducing. And maybe some background to that is I was part of a number of leaders and elders in Western Australia who were opposed to the manner in which the West Australian government introduced the cultural heritage legislation and the manner in which they continued to reserve their racist rights to deny us the capacity to say no to destruction of Aboriginal culture. And so when the Premier backflipped, I and other leaders went to meet with the Premier who said sorry but was not really making apologies because he's made his decision to take away the law that they fought so hard to bring in and revert back to legislation from 1972. 1972. Who remembers 1972? I, for one, was two years old. <coughs> Excuse me. And I recall 1972 was quite a different world to 2023. 1972 was before the Racial Discrimination Act came in. 1972 was before the Mabo native title decision. And don't get me wrong, the 1972 Act is actually a very, very, very good piece of legislation. I've worked with it all my professional life. The problem with the 1972 Act, though, is no government has ever implemented it, apart from a very narrow process, which is the Section 18 process. And the Section 18 process relates to the process of allowing for people to interfere or disturb or damage an Aboriginal site. 
It was never about destruction of Aboriginal sites. But that's how the government and industry have sought to represent and implement the Aboriginal Heritage Act, largely since the 1980s. Really started with the Dampier to Bunbury gas pipeline and the fact that there were, was a major infrastructure project that resulted in damage and destruction to a number of Aboriginal sites. And from that point on, that created the, um, the survey industry of undertaking Aboriginal heritage surveys to identify sites. Prior to that, the WA Museum, which looked after the Aboriginal Heritage Act, documented, recorded, protected and maintained Aboriginal sites. And I know that because my very first job as an anthropologist graduating from university was as a research officer, a prestigious position of the time in the Aboriginal Sites Department of the WA Museum. And my job was to record Aboriginal sites as they occurred throughout Western Australia. Every now and then a site pops up or a report pops up from, what is it, 30, 40 years ago now. And I get surprised and go, oh wow, I didn't realise I recorded this site or I did that job. That was how the Aboriginal Heritage Act operated way back then. The Aboriginal leadership have said to the Premier and Minister Booty, we want you guys to succeed, but we want you to update and modernise the Aboriginal Heritage Act if you're going down that process to ensure that we have a voice in heritage protection. Now, sadly, the big blinding light at the end of the tunnel is going to be a massive freight train that continues to allow for the destruction of Aboriginal sites, a Jukan every day, for the next 50 years. And that's the legacy that this state government is about to saddle the people of Western Australia in the very same quarter of the year where we go to vote on the referendum. The referendum to recognise Aboriginal people and set up the voice. Now, there's a lot of arguments in the community about the referendum and the voice, many of which are equally valid. There's a lot of Aboriginal people I know who are very sound thinkers, grassroots activists who oppose 
the referendum, uh, who opposed the recognition in the constitution. And then, of course, there are some political expediency types as well. But to those who are the hardcore, long-term Aboriginal rights activists, I know where they're coming from. Where they're coming from is that all we're doing with the referendum is an editing, copy editing exercise. Updating an outdated constitution that does not reflect modern society, does not reflect the Australia we live in today. The mere fact that we are going to a referendum to bring recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples into the Constitution when specifically we were written out of the Constitution strikes to the very core of what the argument from the activists is, which is about preserving and maintaining and not ceding the Aboriginal sovereignty. And that's an ongoing conversation that the Australian settler society and Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people will have for many years to come. It was attempted by um, a previous iteration of uh, Aboriginal voices to government uh, way back in the 70s, the calls for treaty and Bob Hawke actually took the momentum out of the treaty campaign by setting up the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation. And this is the litany of opportunities lost. The litany of opportunities lost include the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation. The idea behind that was to set up a process of reconciliation in Australia so that after a 10-year period of conversation, retrospection, consideration, we, the Australian people, would be mature enough to articulate a relationship between the settler society and Ab the First Nations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, through a document or documents of reconciliation. Some people may remember this, these terms. That was the pathway to a treaty. Sadly, it was sidelined and sabotaged and diminished by John Howard. And many people will remember the bare, utter disappointment of 
the people who were so immersed in trying to bring reconciliation in Australia, they were so disappointed with this extremist radicalism of John Howard. They stood and turned their backs on the Prime Minister of Australia. And the bumbling idiot was unfazed. He went on and started taking away people's guns and um, other populist moves like, um, well, selling Telstra, introducing GS... No, I don't know if he did the GST, but anyway. He just um, bumbled along. And in his bumbling, reduced Australia to pile of ashes, the hearts, the soul, the spirit, the enthusiasm of seeking reconciliation was reduced to a pile of ashes, out of which sprang reconciliation action plans. And this might come as a surprise to many people out there who look at uh, work with Reconciliation Action Plans, I would be very surprised if many people knew or understood that Reconciliation Action Plans are the short end, the desperate end, the plea of civic-minded Australians to preserve and realise the ambitions of this idea of a treaty between Aboriginal people and the settler society. That's where Reconciliation Action Plans come from. From that heritage sadly cut down and weaned and brain broken down into this small document. But in Reconciliation Action Plans survive the idea of a reconciled Australia that celebrates the culture and the heritage and the diversity and the richness that I hold, that we hold as First Nations peoples. I live a very prosperous and wealthy life immersed in my culture. It may not translate into financial or monetary means, but spiritually, culturally, I am blessed to be an Aboriginal Australian. And that's what the reconciliation movement was about. And so what you find, there are these various pathways that lead us to, ultimately we will become a reconciled and 
nation at peace with ourselves. But sadly at the moment, there's so much political expediency. There is so much brutal racism just smouldering under the surface of people who are largely uneducated, misguided and on occasion evil although I think those are very few it's more ignorance and people who are comfortable in their ignorance they cannot see anything outside of the veil of ignorance that enshrouds them and sadly that's where we're what we're witnessing across Australia today people who are immersed in political expediency manipulating the ignorant to undermine what could be a beautiful thing and this beautiful thing is an opportunity to be informed by the collective wisdom of Aboriginal people on how to make decisions about this country and about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in a way that does not harm the intervention into the Northern Territory brought more harm than good. The cutting of bilingual education brought more harm than good. All these conservative agenda initiatives that reared their ugly heads during the Howard years but continued under the Rudd Gillard Abbott era, Morrison era, history will show that these periods were indeed dark days for Australia. And so here I sit, tonight in Kalgoorlie, reflecting on all of these worldly dilemmas and reminded that I'm on sacred land we occupy each of us sacred space And all humans and all life live in a space that will
profane in one hand as material and all of that is also a space of sacredness. And they're the sort of things that I reflect on and share in these pursuits of cultural immersion, visiting country, sharing the beauty of the country. But also I'm very, very lucky as a Aboriginal man who have ancestry both deeply grounded in tribal country, my mother, my grandparents were first contact people. And on my father's side, whilst he immersed himself in Aboriginal law and culture, he comes from a Scottish background. Our ancestor left Scotland in the 1820s and immigrated to Australia. And so through my father's white ancestry, we have, I'm probably the seventh generation uh, born in Australia through that ancestry. And this is a common experience for many Aboriginal people in Australia. And I reflect on the likes of Jacinta Price, who voice her Celtic ancestry. I share that. And yet... I would not want to see the prosperity of Australia at the expense of others. And a person like Jacinta comes from a very strong Aboriginal cultural foundation as well. And she knows that within the society that we come from, we are desert people. We have systems of sharing. And if our elders are given their voices to be able to articulate back to core cultural values, there is so much that we can share with the rest of the world. Anyhow, at the risk of uh, rambling and babbling, I just wanted to contribute another podcast so that those of you who do come and listen to me don't feel that I have abandoned you all. Still here, and I'm hoping to try and gear up Get a producer if there's someone who wants to produce and also if there are people who want to sponsor 
get in touch with me and see if we can continue these My Culture Story podcasts in the way that I do, which is um, drawing on the spirit, the culture of Aboriginal people, but also I have a very strong background in my white ancestry as well. And I walk that path, so I know where you guys are coming from. Probably better than you do, because I do spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. Anyhow, better go along and hope you enjoy this kind of weird podcast that I've just done. Bola no, bola